welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. I'm Kemper Donovan. Oh, and Kemper, my dear, we are covering some Miss Marple. Which one are we covering, Kemper? They do it with mirrors. Public announcement, this story has nothing to do with mirrors. <laughs> nothing at all. Nothing and at all. <laughs> I will say, Kemper, I remembered the sort of gist of the plot, but I kept thinking, gosh, I wonder what the mirror element was. Me too. And so I kept, on, I just I kept, kept on waiting <laughs> for the mirrors to come in. It's so true. <laughs> I remembered the way in to this story really well because it's memorable and it's excellent. Yes, which we'll get to very shortly, but then very little else. And my experience of this novel upon rereading for the podcast was a bit different from my memory of it in ages past, whenever I, I read it a couple of decades ago. So we will talk a whole lot about all of those things. First, let's talk a little bit about the publication history. A condensed version was published in the U.S. in Cosmopolitan in April of 1952 under the title Murder with Mirrors. Slightly thereafter, same year, it was published in the U.S. again by Dodd Mead. And then in the U.K., it was serialized in John Bull. And then in November of the same year by Collins Crime, but in the U.K. it was called They Do It With Mirrors. All right, well, let's talk about our victim, or should I say victims, because there are sort of two. There are actually sort of four, (laughs) but the first two that we will start off with here to frame the story are, first up, Mrs. Carrie Louise Saracolt, who is an American living in England, and she was childhood school friends with one Jane Marple. Oh, exciting. And uh, Carrie Louise's sister, Ruth, believes that something is wrong with Carrie Louise. Potentially someone is trying to harm her. Something is just amiss. Then we have um, Mr. Christian Gulbranson, who's Carrie Louise's stepson from her first marriage. Even though Christian is older than she is, Carrie Louise married a very, very wealthy philanthropist who is much older than her, who is a widower. Um, Anyway, he is shot. While visiting Stony Gates, which is Carrie Louise's house. Let's get into our list of suspects. First up is Carrie Louise herself, although she's never really treated like a suspect. She's very much treated as a would-be victim the entire story, which is why we included her on our victim list, even though she could theoretically be harming herself. But again, that's not something that is ever really a valid option here. Then we have a Louis Saracold. Carrie's third husband. He was an accountant, financial manager person, but since their marriage, he runs the charitable organization that her first husband, Goldbranson, the Goldbranson Institute, that he started. And currently, that organization is working on the rehabilitation of juvenile delinquents. And so they have built essentially like a dormitory campus thing on the grounds of this giant estate. Next up, we have Edgar Lawson, who is a possibly mentally disturbed young criminal who is part of this juvie program, but he also works as an aide, uh, a secretary of sorts to Louis Saracolt. And then we have Gina Hudd, Carrie's granddaughter, the child of Carrie and her first husband's adopted daughter, Pippa, who is half Italian. Pippa married an Italian. 
a fascist, apparently. And she's beautiful and vivacious and prone to attracting basically all of the men around her. Next up, we have Walter Wally Hud, who is Gina's Midwestern American husband, a rather sullen and unhappy gentleman, or is he a gentleman, who is living at Stony Gates very much against his will. Then we have Mrs. Mildred Street, who is Carrie's biological daughter. She's younger than Pippa. Basically, they adopted Pippa, thinking they would never have children, and then became pregnant with Mildred, who um, is really, let's just say, a spoil sport. She's middle-aged. She's frumpy. She is sour. She's mean to everybody around her. All right. Next up, we have Stephen Restrick, who is the theater arts director at this juvie center that they've got set up here at Stony Gates. And he is Carrie Louise's stepson from her second marriage. <laughs> <laughs> so right. we've got we've got all three of her marriages covered here and her second husband it seems ran off with someone else, but she still is very close with her two stepsons and I may as well just mention her second stepson who is absolutely another suspect here, Alexis Resterick, Stephen's older brother, also a theater director and a bit of a roguish figure. The, right. the two brothers are somewhat caddish. Yeah, and their mother was a Russian so they are both handsome and exotic looking. And then last, we have Juliet Jolly Balliver, who's Carrie's longtime paid companion, who's been with her since marriage number two. And she's extremely bossy, but Carrie Louise seems to love her. She's the devoted companion. We may have seen that character a few times before. Mm, correct. All right. So let's talk about the world as it appears to be. We open on Miss Marple on page one. We do. Visiting with her old friend, Ruth Van Rydock, who is a fantastic character, my favorite she's character. So, well, she's so novel. great. Yeah. She's so great. She is extremely wealthy. She is thrice divorced, and they joke about how between these two sisters, Ruth and Carrie Louise, they've got six husbands. And we're thinking, what does Jane Marple have to do with either of these two thrice married women? And she knew them when they were all girls together in school. They were in Italy, in fact. They've managed to keep in touch through the years. And this is where I would just like to pull out a little bit of autobiographical detail, as I like to do. Miss Marple's backstory here of studying in Italy with Ruth and Carrie Louise is somewhat drawn from Agatha's own life. And she details this in her autobiography, as we've discussed on a few episodes. You know, she went abroad from an early age and quite frequently. The first time when she was just six, her family moved to Pau for six months as a way of saving money. I still love the fact that you could save money by going abroad. Really I know. wish that was my life. But the <laughs> well, Millers... Just, just a half to go to the south of France. So the Millers spent six months in Pau, during which time young Agatha met Dorothy and Mary Selwyn, who were two sisters who were staying at the same hotel, one of whom was a year older than her, the other was a year younger, and per Christie, they were inseparable. And she actually tells a very entertaining story about their exploits, which relates directly to the puzzle mystery we are about to encounter in this novel. So bear with me a second, but I think I've uncovered perhaps the inspiration for this novel, which Christie herself was perhaps not even aware of when she was writing okay. the novel or All this right. autobiographical excerpt. I'm joking a little bit, but I'm also not joking a little bit. Putting on your deer stalker hat. Yeah. And, uh... All right. So this is what she writes. 
My mother and Mrs. Selwyn were sitting together happily talking when a message was brought by the chambermaid. With the compliments of the Belgian lady who lived in the other block of the hotel, did Mrs. Selwyn and Mrs. Miller know that their children were walking round the fourth floor parapet? Imagine the sensation of the two mothers as they stepped out into the courtyard, looked up, and caught sight of three cheerful figures balancing themselves on a parapet about a foot in width and walking along it in single file. Again, remember, they were on the fourth floor. The idea that there was any danger attached to it never entered our heads. We'd gone a little far in teasing one of the chambermaids, and she had managed to inveigle us into a broom cupboard and then shut the door on us from outside, triumphantly turning the key in the lock. Our indignation was great. What could we do? There was a tiny window and sticking her head out of it, Dar, that was Dorothy, said she thought possibly that we could wriggle through and then walk along the parapet, round the corner, and get in at one of the windows along there. And that's exactly what they did. Wow. I'm just saying, a little interesting, given where we're going to go here, and that these are two sisters who she spent time with abroad in her childhood. I'm just saying. But also, I think it's worth noting that after POW, they continued to travel, and they eventually settled in Cauteray, also in the south of France. And she met other friends here, including, quote, a little American girl, Marguerite Prestley, who had a nurse called Fanny, whose Southern American drawl was such that I could seldom understand what she said. And then she also talks about how when she went to a pensionnat in Paris when she was 15, that she, quote, liked the company of the American girls especially, and this is also quoting from the autobiography, they had a breezy, interesting way of talking and reminded me of my Cauteray friend, Marguerite Presley. So I imagine that Agatha Christie uh-huh. was thinking of Marguerite when she was writing uh-huh. Carrie Louise. And- also, also our Patreon listeners might notice some similarities to Unfinished Portrait. Just a few, yes. Just a few. Memorable experiences, I guess, for her, because she certainly utilized them in her actual work later. And then my final point on this is, let's also, of course, not forget that Christy herself was the daughter of an American. I don't think we repeat that enough, that her father was American. Yeah, we rarely talk about it, actually. Yeah, which is very interesting. And she actually also writes about this in the autobiography, that her entree into certain French circles was easier as, I'm quoting again here, all Americans were supposed to have some money. So even though she really didn't have any money, they were like, oh, right, that's the young lady whose father was an American. So in a weird way, Christy herself was the American girl getting an education abroad. And now I shall retire. And now I'm not going to speak for the rest of the... Well, we all know that's not true. (laughs) I mean, unlikely. Unlikely. So we have Jane Marple here visiting her dear old friend, Ruth Van Rydock. And Ruth is visiting London, as she does every year. And eventually, after some delightful back and forth, this is just a a wonderful opening scene between Miss Marple and Ruth Van Rydock, she eventually tells her friend that she's worried about her sister, Carrie Louise, who, even though Carrie Louise lives in England, Miss Marple's really fallen out of touch with her. Miss Marple has not seen her in more than 20 years. They exchange cards and letters. There's actually a really astute Christie observation there that she sees um, Ruth frequently because Ruth comes into town, you know, once or twice a year because she's very cosmopolitan. And it's the people who you think you might just run into because they live in the same place as you that you actually never see. So, yeah, she hasn't seen Carrie Louise in many, many, many years. So when Ruth, before she had come to London, she had gone to Stony Gates to see her sister, she felt that something was wrong. She doesn't know what, but something. She knows something is. So she asks for Miss Marple's help. 
And she basically says, will you please go down there? Then she also tells Miss Marple, by the way, I might have told Carrie Louise that you were a destitute um, spinster who lives in like a hovel and has threadbare clothes. And wouldn't it be nice if she just invited you down there herself so that you could have like some nice warm food and like a fancy room for a few weeks? I do not think that I would have the grace that Miss Marple does here. Or does she have the grace? Or is Dark Marple planning her revenge? There's a lot of good Dark Marple moments in here. And and I would include this as one where she's like, why would I take offense? Although she does say a little unfair, perhaps, on my nephew Raymond to let it be thought that he does not assist me. I mean, still, the dear boy is in Mexico for six months. What is Raymond doing in Mexico? (laughs) I guess he's writing his next great novel. You know, as we know, Miss Marple actually lives quite well, Curtis of Raymond West. So she has to um, charmingly dig out her shabbiest wardrobe, stuff that was going to be tossed out. Her speckledy. Mm-hmm. Her string bag. Yeah. Yeah. And then she heads out to the country. And in the country, at the train station, Edgar Lawson is there acting very strange. I would just like to point out the way that he is described when Miss Marple meets him. His voice had an unexpectedly dramatic quality to it, as though the utterance of her name were the first words of a part he was playing in amateur theatricals. And then a little later on the same page. The impression was not wholly convincing. It had a theatrical flavor. Mm. Not saying anything right now, but boy, is Agatha Christie playing fair in this novel. There's something off about Edgar. And then their little tete-a-tete is interrupted by Gina Hud, who arrives in her roles and just kind of spirits her away, disregarding Edgar's role in picking up Miss Marple. And he's very resentful about all this. And Gina takes her to Stony Gates, which is this monstrous, huge Gothic mansion, the Victorian lavatory style, which I (laughs) thought was really amusing. I know. The next 60 pages are more or less meeting everyone in the house who we've gone through before Christian Goldbranson surprisingly shows up. And he normally only shows up for annual meetings for the Institute. And they just had one a month previously. So it's very odd for him to come. And when he discovers that Louis Sarekold is away for that day, he says immediately that he'll stay another night because apparently it's very important that he talk to Louis. And so when Louis returns the next day, Miss Marple happens to be in her bedroom, quote unquote, bird watching. Because, you know, of course, she remembered to bring her bird watching glasses. <laughs> Is that a group of siskins I see over I know. there? Oh, I know. Well, while she's leaning, while she's leaning out the window just so that she can overhear what Louis Saracold and Christian Cole Branson are talking about when they're pacing up and down outside. And she only can hear snippets. She can't quite figure out what they're talking about other than the fact that they are talking about how they will handle breaking news to Carrie Louise about something that is of grave concern to them. And this is extra weird because Christian has previously been asking repeatedly about Carrie Louise's health, particularly her heart. After that, the entire group, um, minus Christian, who goes to his room to write letters, they reconvene in the drawing room when no other than Edgar Lawson dashes in brandishing a revolver. Lewis escorts Edgar into his study and shuts and locks the door. 
Well, Edgar screams at him about his paternity. He's saying that Lewis is his father, and how could he have hid this from him? And and previously, Edgar has told Miss Marple that his father was Winston Churchill. Right. We're meant to believe here, and it seems, it very much seems as though Edgar is just off his head. And Lewis murmurs, again, behind this closed door to Edgar. He's trying to talk him down. And at some point, there is a distant sound of either a gunshot or a car backfiring from far away. Then there are two much louder gunshots, clearly coming from the study. And the group, who are all assembled in the drawing room here, just kind of watching this locked door and listening to all this go on, they desperately try to open the door before Lewis finally opens it, out of breath, but no worse for wear, while Edgar is crying on the floor, apparently having missed shooting Lewis. There are two bullet holes there in the wall. And they insist the police aren't to be called. They know what Edgar's problems are, and he didn't really mean to hurt Lewis. Right. If he had meant to, he would have actually shot him. And there's more of this, what I suspect Christy would call psychological mumbo-jumbo <laughs> going on here. And then Jolly comes in saying, well, I just called the police. Not on Edgar, but because guess what? Someone has shot Christian Gulbranson in his room. Murder. In the room, Christian is slumped over in his desk chair in front of a typewriter. The typewriter does not have a page in it, which is odd. But, you know, when the police eventually come by, led by Inspector Curry and Sergeant Lake, Lewis reveals that actually he has removed the letter so that his wife didn't see because Carrie Louise was, of course, going to go in there. She actually is a slightly hardier person than people give her credit for. People spend a lot of time fretting over her. Anyway, he didn't want his wife to see the letter because it was a letter written to Dr. Galbraith, who is another one of the trustees of the Institute. Essentially, the letter apparently is... Apparently J.K. Rowling. I'm apparently sorry. so. <laughs> Dr. J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. I know. Dr. Robert Galbraith. <laughs> the letter is fretting essentially about the same thing that Miss Marple overheard. How to approach a certain subject with Carrie Louise. Then there's another paragraph, and Christian uh, apparently got to the point that someone was poisoning Carrie Louise. Her symptoms that appear to be rheumatism are actually a result of a slow, long-term poisoning. Uh Uh-oh. Then we get a whole bunch of interviews. Very many. Very many. Dare we say this book has a little bit of a dragging the marsh issue. I think it sags a little bit during those interviews, especially for a book that is only a little bit more than 200 pages. So the police are most suspicious, it seems, of Alexis Resterick, since he pulled up to the house right before the shooting and was actually outside in the fog while it was happening. Everyone else in the house seems to have been in the drawing room, again, staring at that study door while this was all going on, except for Wally, who had gone to fix a blown fuse. I hate when that happens, like in Chipping Cleghorn. Uh, Hello, a murder is announced. (laughs) Making him the other prime suspect. That would be our American Wally here. Also because of his general air of resentment and the odd fact that the gun Edgar had been brandishing here when he was seemingly trying to shoot Lewis was in fact Wally's gun. We are also told that the boys from Juvie couldn't have done it because their building is locked up like a detention center. So they seem to be out of it. As the investigation continues, Lewis takes his wife, Gary Louise's daily tonic away from her that Jolly's brought her. And he won't explain why, but he hands it over to the police who discover that it is laced with arsenic. 
hence, I guess, her arthritic-seeming symptoms because joint problems are a sign of arsenic poisoning. They all basically decide that they cannot tell Carrie Louise because she's too fragile, but the rest of the family slowly begins to find out, especially because they're being asked about poisoning. It's actually a little bit like the Christie mystery version of The Farewell. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. Your nan is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Oh, yeah, it is a lot like that. In any case, while he is outside hitting on Gina, as he does, Alexis Resterick recounts to her how the police are threatening him, but he does always have half of his brain inside the theater. And he has Mm -hmm. this realization about how sets are real. Namely that, you know, the sets are made out of real wood and materials, and the illusion comes from the audience, right? That the audience are believing that things function a certain way when they look at a stage, but the sets have real points of ingress and egress. And if this doesn't seem to make sense to us at the moment, that's okay. But you know who it does make sense to? A Miss Marple. Because and Alex because Alex has the ideas. Alex all of a sudden seems to realize what probably is happening. Meanwhile, Carrie Louise gets a package of chocolates. That always goes well in a Christie novel. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> for, it's seemingly from Alex, from Alexis Resterick in the Post. His name is on them. But Ms. Marple intervenes, and she checks with Alexis, who's like, uh, I did not send that box of chocolates. So they bring the chocolates to Lewis, who agrees to bring them to the police to see if they're poisoned. And and they, in fact, are. So the chocolates have been tampered with. And at this point, they have to tell Carrie Louise because her life is very obviously in danger here. And she just cannot believe that anyone would want to poison her. And it doesn't seem to make any sense. Earlier, when the police are doing the interviews, of course, their main interest is less the murder of Christian, more who's trying to murder Carrie Louise, because that's why Christian was murdered in theory, right? To cover up his knowledge and to prevent him from telling anybody his suspicions. And the only assumption there is money. And in fact, everybody in the house benefits from Carrie Louise's death. Right. Yes. Like everyone. (laughs) Except, except her husband, because she's already given him his money. Right. She's already settled her money on Mm -hmm. him. So, in fact, he's one of the only people in the house who has no motive. So, also during this, one of the juvenile delinquents, a boy named Ernie, um, who's very involved in the theater program, he has been going around insisting to everyone that he saw something the night of the murder because he snuck out of his dorm. But he won't tell them what he saw. Miss Marple is very suspicious of this. Unfortunately, He's found dead in the theater alongside Alexis, both of whom have been bashed in the head by a falling set piece. Somebody believed that Ernie had seen something. I often quote our friend John Curran for all the compliments that he gives Christie, but he does have a criticism of this novel, which I thought was apt, which is that these subsequent killings in they do it with mirrors are I'm quoting from him here like similar deaths in later novels of the 1950s unconvincing and read suspiciously like padding <laughs> no one it's, cares no one cares it's shocking and like it's bizarre. Steve, Stephen Resterick is his brother it's his brother and doesn't seem to care at all Gina who he's just proposed marriage to doesn't seem to care we'll get to this but there are three adaptations of this novel and they all switch up these subsequent killings, because they just ring false in the book. They feel like an afterthought. 
So we're almost at the end of the book here, and it's time to talk about the world as it actually is. And we do have some clues, but we don't have a lot of clues. Or, you know, the clues are not covering a whole lot of ground in this book. This is, I would argue, one of Christie's simpler, perhaps even simplest puzzle mysteries for a novel. That's not to say it's bad, but it's, it's just simple. And I think we're used to something a little bit more elaborate when it comes to her puzzle mysteries in her novels. Let's start with clue number one. We have a floor plan published in the front of the book. Yes, we do. Always critical, unless it's not. But it is critical here. We've seen this emphasis on who is in the drawing room and the door is in and out of the drawing room. And we've been focusing for the entire novel on who came in and out, right? Like Wally left, but did anyone else leave when the lights were off because the fuse had blown? And, you know, Alexis is saying this the study was a stage. And what we should think of as astute readers here is possibly there's another way to leave that study, i.e. stage, right? Stages have multiple exits. And obviously the door to the study has been written off because everyone was staring at it the entire time. It was locked and, and no one came in or out of it. But do we really have a locked room situation here in terms of Lewis and Edgar in the study? Uh, And our deduction is no, we don't, because as we can see on that floor plan, there are windows in that room, perhaps perhaps similar to windows that three little girls crawled out of in POW in and around 1896. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. I mean, I think there's a really sort of actually lovely theater idea in that when you're in the audience... And you see somebody exit stage right to go to the kitchen, quote unquote. They're not going to a kitchen, right? They're wandering in the back behind the sets. And that's the question. What is actually behind the set? And if we look at that floor plan, we'll also see that if you do leave the study through that window, there's a terrace that connects the study to a whole bunch of different rooms, including the room where our victim was murdered. That is put right there before page one mm-hmm. of this novel. Very first so. thing you see. All right. What's clue number two, Catherine? It's an oldie and a goodie. It's a classic. Never trust. Only one sense, Kemper. It's related to clue number one, but everyone's focus is on the door to the study because of Edgar and the gun and Edgar and the shouting in the room. But keep in mind, no one can see what is going on inside the room. They can only hear the shouting. So, you know, we've read enough, Christy, we should know this. And the deduction is, if you are only hearing something, perhaps something else is going on. Say, for example, that maybe two people aren't in the room when you think they are, which, you know, we can refer back to, say, Man in the Brown Suit or Murder of Roger Ackroyd, perhaps. Clue number three, which is a bit of a meta clue, but we know that Christie is a big fan of the faked argument trope, most famously in Death on the Nile. That's like the best faked argument ever. And this argument between Edgar and Lewis is very, very public. So it's the same deduction, but we shouldn't trust this argument on its face or lack of face as the case may be. Right. And then we have clue number four, which we touched upon earlier, which is that Lewis Sarekold is described as breathing hard as though he had been running when he opens the study door post-gunshot, post-argument. And also we find out that Alexis, who'd been outside in the fog, had heard footsteps running basically around the same time the murder happened. So the deduction here, building off all our other clues, really brings us home in telling us how the murder was committed, i.e. Lewis has to be the murderer because he ran out that window to the room where he murdered Christian Goldbranson and Edgar Lawson through his voice to make it seem like Lewis was in the study the whole time when everyone could merely hear them and not see them. 
Well, I mean, the other clue is the fact that people repeatedly say over and over again that the only person who couldn't have been the person responsible for poisoning Carrie Louise and who has sort of no motive or interest is, of course, Louis Sarekold. That is also a dead giveaway that he did it. And actually, I think that this book has a few too many instances of the thing that everyone says isn't true being true because we have it in terms of that. Edgar can't, of course, be Lewis's son because he's crazy and he's claiming to be. Oh, no, wait. And we'll get there. Actually, Edgar is Lewis's son. Even to the character level of Gina flirting constantly with the Resterick boys and the fact that, well, she obviously has a terrible marriage with Walter and they're never going to end up together because things are just so horrible with them. And they got married quickly. It was a wartime marriage. It's never going to work out. I knew from the second they were introduced, because Christy loves keeping an original couple together, as we've noted, perhaps also for her own Mm -hmm. personal reasons. I was like, oh, right, they're going to live happily ever after. The other element of that is that Carrie Louise thinks they're going to end up happily ever after. And one of the things that we should know about the book is that Carrie Louise actually is more observant and more in reality than the rest of the characters who are observing a bunch of illusions. Right. And that's another example. We're told time and time again that Carrie Louise is adulpated and weak and dithering, but she turns out to be quite strong-willed and perceptive. Oh, and you know what? The other one, too, is that we're told time and time again, well, Christian Gobranson couldn't have been coming to talk to Louis Sarekold about the trust because he had just been here for the trust. Right. It has to be about something else. And he, in fact, was coming precisely. To talk about the trust. Exactly. And I know that's a core Christie trope, the upending of expectations, but it feels a little repetitive here that time and again, the exact opposite of what these characters harp on turns out to be the case. I just think she overdoes it a little. Let's get into exactly what happened here. Turns out Edgar was not named Edgar at all, but he was, in fact, Lewis's illegitimate son from an affair long ago with an actress. Of course. And he fake charged with the gun so that they could go into the study and close the door. And then Edgar, not Edgar, (laughs) continued to shout there and fire the gun and mumble pretending to be his father while his father went out to get his murder on. And that's why I pulled out the description of Edgar the instant that Miss Marple meets him because Christy plays fair. Yeah. She mm-hmm. says there's something oddly theatrical, theatrical about him. Like right. he's not real. And that's that's exactly the case. All right. So we know how this murder happened. The question is why? It's money. It's always money. Unless it's not. But, you know, often it is somehow money related. So turns out Lewis had been embezzling from the Institute for years, financial wizard that he was. And he was using the boys that he was mentoring, especially the ones who had been involved in financial crime, to hone their own accounting skills. And then once they had been quote unquote rehabilitated, he would invite the best of them into a secret criminal ring where he was essentially placing them in charitable minded businesses as bookkeepers. What was the money for? I mean, this is a little bit where this gets crackpot, but it's to buy an island to become British colony so that he can conduct a social experiment where the reformed juvenile delinquents will start a new country that they will administer from scratch and build from scratch. Which, of course, why not? Christian has figured out what was happening. So he came to confront Louis Sarekold, who takes the news calmly that he's been found out. And then they discuss how they will tell Carrie Louise. And that is the snippets of the conversation that Miss Marple overheard when she was, quote unquote, birdwatching. Right. Because guess what? Carrie Louise was not being poisoned. 
Turns out she just did have rheumatism. And that whole thing in the letter about her being poisoned that Christian Gilbranson wrote was an addition that Lewis made to the letter on that typewriter in the room while he was waiting for the police to show up after the murder had happened. So that made it look as though Christian had come to warn him about Carrie Louise being poisoned, but that was never the case. Lewis then separately put arsenic in the tonic before giving it to the police. There was never any arsenic in it before. And he poisoned those chocolates, too. He actually loved his wife. And then he killed Alexis and Ernie because they were getting too close to him. Again, total afterthought. (laughs) Yeah, and all because he was apparently a fanatical idealist. And a massive hypocrite, right? Because he talks about rehabilitating these boys and how much he cares about them, but he's actually honing their skills as a massive criminal I mean, I I suppose he would say means to an end, the end being this experimental colony, but not good. And then things get even more awkward. Oh, super weird, Kemper. (laughs) It gets very, very odd right by the end. It's because we get a chapter that is a cutaway to Gina writing a letter to her Aunt Ruth, where she discusses the fact that the police confront Edgar who runs madly away from them, just goes sprinting across the estate, gets to the lake, climbs into a rickety boat while everybody's running after him, including the police, including Louis Aircold, and that boat collapses in the lake. He's dragged down with it. Louis Aircold runs in after him. They're both tangled together, and then they both drown. It's like, why convey that information in a letter rather than just showing it happening. I suppose it was faster. Christy I think it wanted, was faster. Christy wanted to, you know, get it over with. So and she was like, I've got like a play to go see. I've got a dinner reservation. I've got some theater tickets, perhaps to one of my own plays. I got to go. <laughs> so odd. It's so odd because also, by the way, it's not the beginning of a letter. It's the middle of a letter. It's the middle of a letter. And then we still get more after the letter, too. It's a really odd choice. I did not love it. And that's something that all the adaptations just naturally improved upon, since obviously you're just going to show that happening. But we should also mention at the end that, as I suspected, Gina and Wally go back to America to live happily ever after. And then also Mildred, Carrie Louise's biological daughter, who seemed to have a tortured relationship with her mother, they end up becoming closer. Carrie Louise, you know, she needs someone and she calls out to Mildred and, you know, they go into the house together. I will touch on this in our stuck in its time category, but there is some interesting dynamics between the adopted daughter and the biological daughter going on here. She, it's just, she just merely touches on it. And we've mentioned this before, but Ordeal by Innocence is the, is the novel to fully unpack that issue. But we do get a soupçon of it in this novel as well. Right. As we did in Mrs. McGinty's Dead. Yes. It's clearly on her mind. And that is the end of the book. <laughs> No, this is not the end of the episode. Don't touch that dial. We will be right back with more. But we wanted to take a moment to ask our listeners a favor. If you have not already done so, we would so appreciate it if you would take a moment to provide us with a rating and or a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews affect the ease with which other Christie fans such as yourselves can find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds. And we are going to very helpfully provide 
I do with those seconds right here. So go to it. Thank you so much. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Before we get into ranking this novel, we should talk about the three adaptations that we have for They Do It With Mirrors. The first goes by the U.S. title Murder with Mirrors, and that is from 1985. It is a Warner Brothers production. And just a little bit of background here on how it came to be. And of course, I am cribbing, as as I always do, from our good friend Mark Aldridge in his book, Agatha Christie, on screen. But apparently in the early 80s, Rosalind Hicks agreed to license a Caribbean mystery to Warner Brothers Television with Helen Hayes playing the role of Miss Marple. Helen Hayes, you know, first lady of the theater, a huge talent, But unfortunately, Rosalind Hicks did not much like the results, and she never would have licensed this title to Warner's because this would be the second Helen Hayes Miss Marple vehicle. And she did not, in fact, license this title to Warner's because it was not her license to give. Christie gifted certain of her titles to specific family members, and she happened to give this title to her grandson, Matthew Pritchard. That would be Rosalind's son. And Matthew himself told Mark in an interview that he recounts in the book, and I'm quoting here from Matthew, my mother got quite angry with me because I owned They Do It With Mirrors, and I sold that. As far as I remember, I wanted to buy quite an expensive sculpture at the time. (laughs) So that's how this movie came into being. Long live all. That's fascinating. Isn't it? I thought that was worth covering. A few quick points to cover here. Helen Hayes' accent is really, really bad. So hard to imagine, isn't it? The idea of murder, I mean. A person taking the life of another person. But I suppose it happens all the time. Though not as often as the films or television would have us believe. Although, on the other hand, the newspapers are full of such stories and they don't lie about things like that. Although one wonders sometimes if they don't make up some of it, just in case their readers are tired of reading about Princess Diana or Belfast or even soccer matches. I rather like Liverpool's chances this year. Do you? It's very distracting, but we would be remiss if we did not mention that Carrie Louise is played by Betty Davis. However, this is not a fun Betty Davis movie because this movie came out in 1985. Betty Davis passed away in 1989. She is so feeble in this movie, it's actually hard to watch. It's not funny. Like, she can barely speak or move. And she disappears for large portions of the film. And apparently they had to give some of her lines to other characters. She just couldn't handle it. She had lots of health problems towards the end of her life, right? Yeah. I also just think that Betty Davis is not who I would go to for the sweet seeming head in her clouds, Carrie Louise. It's like, I'm sorry, but I don't believe for a second that Betty Davis is not acquainted with the ugly side of the world. And I say that as a massive compliment. Oh, Betty Davis. Betty Davis is tough as nails. Do you want like Olivia de Havilland? Exactly. Carrie Louise is Melanie. She's not Jezebel. She's Melanie Wilkes. That's a really odd casting decision. I do also have one gossipy tidbit that Mark Aldrich had in his book, which I think a lot of people will appreciate. So this is an anecdote via producer Alan Shane from the set of Murder with Mirrors. And now I'm quoting here. As well as ignoring Hayes throughout a joint interview, Shane recalled what happened after Hayes had greeted Davis on set on the first day, saying, How are you, Betty? I'm so glad we're working together. 
Look, Betty said, we're going to be here for days and there's no point wasting our breath saying hello and how are you every time we see each other. Let's just do our work. And then Shane continues, to my knowledge, the two ladies never spoke again. <laughs> I love Betty Davis. Love her forever. Oh my um, gosh. Margot Channing is one of my favorite creations on screen. I mean, the only other thing I'll say about it is that it is present day, which I always find vaguely depressing, the same way I did those Peter Ustinov Poirots that were also present day. Right. Um, but we do at least, because of that, get the benefit of Lewis Saracold using a tape recorder <laughs> to, like, tape his voice so that Edgar doesn't have to throw his voice like he does in the text. So, you know, slight improvement, perhaps. Then our second is our BBC Joan Hickson, Miss Marple, in 1991. This aired as a special on the 29th of December of that year. And a little background on this one, which I found interesting. This is the second to last of the novels that were produced in the series, and no one seems to have been particularly excited about it. Per Mark Aldridge, one of the producers said the book, quote, doesn't make sense, end quote, <laughs> and, which I think is actually unduly harsh. But right. um, even Hickson herself apparently admitted it wasn't one of her favorites. And then I think she like immediately backtracked and was like, oh, well, of course I don't have any favorites. <laughs> the other reason that this was one of the last to be produced is that it had to be freed from Warner Brothers, since, of course, Matthew Pritchard had sold it only a few years before. So by the time this came out in 91, I mean, the Hickson series started in 84, I believe. Joan Hickson was 85 by the time this was produced. Mark was just full of lots of really great gossipy tidbits here. When this did air on the BBC, ITV, quote, dusted off its copy of the American 1984 adaptation of the story starring Helen Hayes and broadcast it in a primetime slot on a Sunday night two weeks before Christmas in the hope that it, were, it would result in casual viewers declining to watch the Hickson version. <laughs> That's wonderfully catty. Little ITV BBC uh, warfare going on there. You know it happens all the time. It's like the New York I, Times and the Washington Post. I love it. You know, I think the the standard of excellence that the Joan Hickson version generally has. I know not everyone agrees with us, but they kept the bar where it is. But that said, you know, there was a fairly big two year gap in production between this adaptation and the one preceding it. And I feel like some of the crew must have changed, or else maybe people were getting tired or a little lazy or something because the costuming was bad in a way that I think mm. it normally isn't for the series. Like it looked very 80s slash early 90s. At yeah. Times, didn't yeah. it? It 100% did. It was really weird. Like, I was like, guys, it's so obvious that this is in 1991. Like, what are you doing? It's the earlier Joan Hicks and Marples are not like that. It's also really apparent, unfortunately, that the plot is weak. You can yes. like almost ignore it more in the book than you can watching the adaptation. That takes away from it. Joan Hickson's great in it. She's amazing. Yeah, she's she's as excellent as she always is. You know, sometimes when Christie is adapted in a visual medium, we have this problem when the puzzle mystery hinges on something performative. And that's certainly what we have here. And, you know, we come across it when it involves costume changes and wigs and dark lighting and throwing your voice. And it doesn't always rely on that, but it sometimes does. And, you know, we can run into those problems. And I think that's one where describing what happened with everyone arranged behind that door and, you know, Edgar throwing his voice, it's a little bit more convincing to describe it on the page than it is to actually show it to us. Yeah. On the screen. Yeah. I actually found the score to be intrusive slash overactive, which is 
totally different from earlier episodes where I called it out for having too little score. So I'm totally being a Goldilocks here. But now it felt like there were too much. Every time certain characters would appear, they'd have almost certain like light motifs. Oh, well, it was like most, they had Wagnerian light motifs. Did you most, notice that? Yeah, it's most noticeable with Wally. Wally. Yeah. Wally has a twangy guitar cue that sounds like vaguely Western. But also, yeah. um, Christian Golbranson has this kind of stately, officious kind of jingle that sounded like vaguely House of Cardsian to me. It's bizarre and it's relentless. There was also this theatrical production of Alex Resterix that Ruth and Miss Marple watched at the beginning that was amusingly avant-garde, but like really jarringly filmed. At first I was like, what am I even watching right now? It was just for a series that seems to know its tone and its look and its feel so effortlessly from episode one. It was curious that in the second to last episode, it felt like it was stumbling a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it's partially the fault of the book, but it's a surprising amount of flaws in what are normally really, really high-quality productions. No, agreed. A commonality between the BBC uh, Hickson version and our third and final version, which is, of course, ITV's offering, in 2009 of their Marple series. This was when Julia McKenzie was playing Miss Marple. So we're in season four of six here. Both the ITV version, the BBC version brought Ruth Van Rydock back into the story. Well, she's the best character. Because she's the best character. That's like, to me, was an improvement on the book because it's a shame that we, we don't get to see Ruth after that opening scene. So she comes to Stony Gates and she's kind of part of the action. And in the Julia McKenzie version, Ruth Van Rydock is played by Joan Collins. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And Carrie Louise is played by Penelope Wilton. And Penelope Wilton makes the character very different from how she is on the page, but it really works. And there's even a fair amount of sparring that happens between her and her sister, Ruth. Her Carrie Louise is much sharper, even though she still has an optimistic outlook on people that contrasts with Ruth as played by Joan Collins. I just, I, I really enjoyed both of their performances. Some of the other characters just felt a little arch and ridiculous not in a good way, as sometimes happens, I think, with the ITV Marple series. But the one thing that they did that was interesting is that they changed the blocking of the sleight of hand that happens on the page. And that was, I think, a really smart change. And Mark also gave them credit for that. He put it really well. He said, because the new series of Marple had never been worried about making changes to the original story, this actually enabled this adaptation to strengthen the original plot a little so as to make the events more credible. And basically, instead of everyone staring at a closed door, Lewis and Edgar are arguing within the drawing room and everyone else is in the drawing room. And then the lights go out as they do in the text. And there's just a lot of mayhem. And Edgar is kind of pushing Lewis out onto the terrace. And he kind of disappears around a corner, but they're still arguing. And then at that point, that's when Lewis rushes down the terrace. But because of all the mayhem happening and the fact that they're all in the same room, it just feels more believable. Like it's blocked, I think, in a better way than it even is in the Hickson version, which stuck to the original text. So I did appreciate that. And I think none of these versions was superlative, but they all have something to offer. 
We should also note that the French series, Les Petits Meutes, there are two different versions of that series when they switched main characters from two men to a man and a woman. And they do it with mirrors with the first novel adapted in the new version of the series, which I believe they're still running with. So that would be with police commissioner Swan Lawrence and the journalist Alice Avril. We talked on our one of our Patreon episodes about that um, series, and um, I think we both quite enjoyed the ABC murders, so uh, maybe yeah, that should absolutely. be the one that we check out, the new characters. All right, let's move into our rankings and start with plot mechanics. I think we've actually covered a lot of what we need to cover for our conversation here in all of these categories, right. but starting with plot mechanics, we mentioned that this is a, a very simple Christie puzzle mystery. I would even go so far as to say, and this is a little bit of of an exaggeration, but we've seen puzzle mysteries of this level of complexity in some of her short stories, or at least certainly her novellas. This feels like a really, really simple solution, which involves one sleight of hand, right? Like it just involves someone throwing his voice and then another person doing a murder quickly because he's able to run down a terrace. Uh, I will say, I would say it was a little bit of work coming up with clues even for this episode. So no, it's it's true. Like all of our clues are kind of circling around the same idea, right? Like there, it's just one idea of sleight of hand, which fair enough. I mean, that's where the title comes from. They do it with mirrors. Yeah. They do it with mirrors. It's why, you know, it has nothing to do with mirrors, but magicians do tricks with mirrors. Miss Marple's repeated references to the woman sawn in half. Yes, which is very funny. Totally. I don't think that we should penalize it too much for its simplicity because there is an elegance to simplicity. But I don't think that we could say that this is one of Christie's more impressive puzzle mysteries when it comes to plot mechanics. No, there's not. There's nothing wrong with the mechanics. Some of them you're just like, wait, how? What? No. Here it's the opposite. It's it's so easy that you're like, okay. Yeah, no, that totally works. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. It's also worth noting something really brilliant that she's doing here, plot mechanics-wise, and that is upending the very classic murder mystery trope of the unintended or contingent murder victim, i.e. when someone within a murder mystery is murdered, but as a means to the end of the ultimate murder or the ultimate victim within the story. And we've seen Christy use this trope many times before, perhaps most brilliantly in three-act tragedy, where the initial murder turns out to be very much contingent upon the ultimate murder. But what she's doing here is taking it to the next level by baking that assumption into the story itself. So from pretty much the moment that Christian Goldbranson is murdered, because of that typewritten letter that Louis Saracold produces, we are all made to believe that Christian Goldbranson's murder is contingent upon the ultimate murder of Carrie Louise Saracold. And of course, the trick Christie employs here is that this isn't the case. Christian Goldbranson is, in fact, the ultimate murder victim. And I think it's a really clever reworking of a classic trope and very, very Christie-ish. I was thinking of doing sixes for both plot mechanics and plot credibility. And there's an argument to be made, actually, that perhaps plot credibility should be a little bit higher than plot mechanics because there's nothing particularly incredible about any well, of this. Well, I mean, other, other, th- other than Lewis Saracold's uh, desire to do Lord of the Flies by an on an island. The juvenile rehabilitation angle doesn't really have to do with the mechanics of the puzzle mystery, and it doesn't really have to do with the immediate motive, which is money. The underlying motive, which is using that money to buy an island, 
is definitely ridiculous. So it it's certainly not like a nine or a ten or even an eight. I think at most we could give it a seven. I think six and six is totally reasonable. Okay. Then we get to Miss Marple. I think we both really liked Miss Marple. I you know I don't think this is like the best Miss Marple novel, but it's certainly a very, very good one. Oh, she's delightful in it, I think. I appreciated that Ingots of Gold is actually referenced when Miss Marple is trying to find the perfect village parallel for Edgar Lawson. She talks about uh, gardeners working on Whit Monday. At another point, when someone says, I think it's Lewis Saracold says to Miss Marple, like, oh, this all must be very distressing to you. Christy writes, modesty forbade Miss Marple to reply that she was, by now, quite at home with murder. <laughs> I'm also going to quote this passage in full because it's fascinating to me that this is in here. It really kind of sums up a lot of Miss Marple and maybe Christy, but uh, she's talking to Lewis Saracold about their work and like her suspicions a little bit about the juvenile delinquent program. She says, I do think sometime one sense of proportion, oh, I don't mean you, Mr. Saracold. Really, I don't even know what I mean. But the English are rather odd that way. Even in war, so much prouder of their defeats and their retreats than of their victories. Foreigners never can understand why we're so proud of Dunkirk. It's the sort of thing they'd prefer not to mention themselves. But we always seem to be almost embarrassed by a victory and treat it as though it weren't quite nice to boast about it. And look at all our poets. The charge of the light brigade. And the little revenge went down in the Spanish main. It's really a very odd characteristic when you come to think of it. Miss Marple drew a fresh breath. I actually love that passage. I had noted that passage, not in our Miss Marple category, but in our setting and tone category, actually positively, just because I think that it's one of those salient points that Christie often makes in the course of a puzzle mystery that has nothing to do with anything, really, but adds so effectively to the texture oh, of the for novel. Sure. Well, and what she's talking about is the next line is, well, what I mean to say is that this all must seem rather odd to Wally Hud. It's like why he doesn't really fit in. It's a great moment. Just one other dark Marple moment as well. Oh, please. Just to add fuel her. to the fire here for <laughs> Catherine. At one point, Miss Marple does say, to commit a murder, I think you do need bravery. Or perhaps more often, just conceit. Yes, conceit. <laughs> Feels like she's speaking from personal experience. In any case, um, I think we were both in agreement on a seven for Miss Marple yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Book-specific characters, I am a bit lower on this, I believe, than you are, Catherine. I was miffed that Ruth Van Rydock uh, was gone so early in the book because she's an exquisite character. Well, she, I wanted you more know what? Ruth. She packs a real punch early on. So, like, you know, she gets into a few pages what other characters might take hundreds it's true. I was also a little disappointed that the Gina and Wally relationship was resolved exactly as I knew it would be from the second that they were introduced. Did not love that. But they're all convincing. They're convincingly yeah. drawn. They feel like real people. The only other point I'd like to make is about a character we haven't mentioned, who is Inspector Curry, our inspector of, of the novel. Enjoys doodling kittens and the margins of his notes. That is exactly what I was going to say. I love that he draws <laughs> cats as he's working on the case. It's so weird. He's like drawing in the whiskers. 
characters and he's like it's just really really funny and like it's actually effective because Chrissy doesn't do that a lot she doesn't no. give her inspectors little quirks and if she did it would be annoying and I would roll my eyes at it but the fact that just random inspector curry and they do it with mirrors draws cats as he's working I was like yes I know I it's that. it's delightful <laughs> and especially because it's clear that he is immediately bored of all these people and thinks they're all nuts and so yeah. they're talking and talking and talking and he's thinking to himself well you know this cat could use some more whiskers <laughs> totally i would probably do a six but i think you wanted to do a seven is that right yeah i think there are very few flat characters in this fair enough i think a seven actually is right and then setting and tone at least for me the setting was fine because the juvenile institution never felt quite real i wasn't blown away by Stony Gates as a physical setting. There are a couple little references to the post-war period, but nothing overwhelming, which is fine because we've gotten a lot of that in Christie. And I actually, it was kind of a relief not to (laughs) have to talk about the effects of the war, but the dragging the marsh issue when it comes to just overall readability. And I guess we can put this, you know, within the tone category. That was a real issue for me. Again, this thing was only 214 pages in my edition. One of Christie's shorter books for sure, but I did find it to be a bit of a slog, relatively speaking. It's still a delight. I still really, really enjoyed it. I will argue with you slightly. We're going to end up in the same place, but I will say that probably for at least the first 50 or so pages, I was reading it thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so delighted by this. I am so happy to be reading this. I like the descriptions. I love when she goes to Stony Gates, the commentary about the gardens and the maintenance of the gardens and the sort of descriptions of the house. And when Miss Marple is brought up to the bedroom, one of my favorite things is She's a little bit, I think, shocked at how old-fashioned and not updated these giant, giant bedrooms are. And then she opens the door to the bathroom, and it's all chrome that had been redone in the 20s or 30s by Carrie Louise's second husband. There are so many of those details in it that I was just delighted by. But again, and this goes to your point, Kemper, that was the first, you know, 50, 60, 70 pages. And then all of a sudden, it does become a slog. Yeah, I, I hear you actually as you're talking about the specificity when it comes to Stony Gates. I think she was even modeling it on Abney Hall, where her sister Madge lived. So I, for whatever reason, it didn't affect me the same way, but that makes sense. Your comment earlier that it's like she had a dinner reservation she had to get to and so churned out the rest of it. It really does read like that. Or the more likely scenario is that she's written about this, how if she could, she would prefer her mysteries to be about 40,000 words. Mm-hmm. to be novella length, but she knew that there were certain parameters within which she had to work to make her fiction commercial. So she had to extend to, you know, 60 to 80,000 words or thereabouts. And sometimes you can feel that padding. Like you can feel that she had written a more compact story that had to be made longer. And she's usually better but, at broadening it out. But I would say the beginning of the book is all padding. It's mostly Ruth telling stories about all of their many marriages. It is, but it's setting up the characters. 
Right. And she does that so well. We're, we're finding out their backstories. We're being introduced to them. We're being shown the house. We're getting to know who these people are and where they live and how they live and what their foibles and preoccupations are. And then the murder happens. And then it's like, oh, right. And now we have to, quote, yeah. unquote, investigate it. Right. And like what she seems not at all interested in. She seems as interested as... Inspector Curry doodling in the margins. Totally. Yeah, the enthusiasm wanes. That being said, I think we both came out on a six, which is not that low. Uh, no. Yes. All right. That is setting in tone. And then we have stuck in its time. I'm going to argue for one deduction. And this is one of those cases where it's just a couple of little things that I think add up to having to do a deduction, but certainly no more than that. That's my opinion anyway. The whole like blood will tell thing and Carrie Louise choosing Mildred potentially over Gina, the adopted side of her family. I actually wouldn't even include that in stuck in its time. I don't think it's fair to include that. And, and, well, and the only character, we'll, the only character who makes a big deal of it is Mildred, who clearly is Mildred. So it's totally within Mildred's voice. Fair enough. There is some weird but light Italian prejudice, which we've seen before regarding Gina. There's a bunch of really weird comments. One is... She's half Italian, you know, and the Italians have that unconscious vein of cruelty. They've no compassion for anyone who's old or ugly or peculiar in any way. They point with their fingers and jeer. And it is a character saying that, but there are just a bunch of characters who say it a bunch of times. Another one is the Italians are never truthful. And she's a Roman Catholic, of course. I'm not going to go through more of them, but there are there There are a number of them. There's also the weird there's also the weird reference to taming of the shrew at the end. Yes, which is a little uncomfortable. Although it is funny, Miss Marple calls Gina Kate. And right. Wally says, oh no, her name is Gina. <laughs> right, he thinks that she just is senile and <laughs> right. her name. Not that she's making a reference to the Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, and Gina's like, oh no, no, she's going to call you Petruchio in a second. You right. Know? We do also get the phrase... The N-word in the woodpile, which we have come across we have before come across Christy. It before. Yeah. That was a chapter title in Dumb Witness. This was a phrase that people used back when Christy was writing it. It kind of means essentially a fly in the ointment. It's jarring, so that's there. There's also a really weird description of Alex Resterick from Inspector Curry's point of view. He noted the slightly pointed ears, the un-English Mongolian type of face. Christy is so weird about describing faces and heads and whatnot. Sometimes. Well, and also, it's a little bit like their mother was Russian. It doesn't seem like that makes any... But, and there's another thing about like Russians also not being trustworthy. Right, yes. Well, I guess Mongolia is... Adjacent with, to... Within, yeah, within the region-ish. I guess so. I mean, yeah. also really odd. kind of adds up to Well, no, to and then also, deduction. we have not mentioned once Dr. Maverick. Mm-hmm. We've made it this entire podcast without reference Dr. Maverick and, you know, good riddance. But he actually shows up quite a bit in this book. And like, you know, his kooky theories that everybody's crazy. The sort of relationship to psychology and psychiatry in this book is not good. Yeah, it comes across as sort of ham-fisted and also biased. I just think Christy is telegraphing her lack of belief in anything that these psychiatrist characters are saying, but it's just making it all come across as like pretty silly. And it makes the book feel old fashioned in a way that certainly wasn't intended and that it didn't at the time, but it does now. Right. So are you in agreement with one deduction? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Okay. For a bunch of like ticky tacky things. Exactly. All right. 
Well, it is time to tally up the score for They Do It With Mirrors. We have 6 plus 6 plus 7 plus 7 plus 6 minus 1 for a grand total of 31 points, putting They Do It With Mirrors in a tie, yet again, of course, with three titles. Okay. Those three titles are Sparkling Cyanide, The Body in the Library, and The Sidiford Mystery. Just underneath those titles, we've got One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, The Secret Adversary, and The Man in the Brown Suit. We're about halfway in terms of our rankings. We're in the low 20s here, and and we've now covered 43 novels. So I feel good about its general placement. I feel pretty strongly that Sparkling Cyanide and The Body in the Library are better titles. Completely agree. I'm not sure where I land on it against Sidiford Mystery. I'm not either. Um, um, interesting. I am inclined. I might put it below yeah, it. Yeah, uh-huh. I agree. Right? I would put Sidiford right? Mystery above it, I think. We are just Sidiford Mystery stands. I know. There's Who, no two ways about it. You know, <laughs> Kemper, it might be one of the greatest surprises of this podcast is that we really just like Sidiford Mystery that much. So uh, they do it with mirrors is now 24th. Out of 43 It's in, it's in good company, though, because all four of yeah. those books are terrific. And this is a terrific book. I worry that this is going to be one of those episodes where it sounds as though we didn't like the book. But Not we true. did. Definitely Not true. It's just that there were aspects of it that I didn't enjoy or just that came across differently from what I was expecting or perhaps what I remembered or what my nostalgia for this title was. So I think that's where the criticism is coming from. But overall, great book. Delightful. All right. Well, that is They Do It With Mirrors. Join us next episode for the final novella within the Murder in the Muse slash Dead Man's Mirror collection of Poirot novellas, The Incredible Theft. And we should mention that our next novel is also a Poirot. That would be After the Funeral. Intriguing. Big favorite among a lot of Christie fans, so I'm very much looking forward to revisiting that one. We would love to hear from you. First off, if you just cannot get enough of us or would like to support us, we would love to have you over at our Patreon site. That is at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. Our latest episode is covering a few Tommy and Tuppence short stories oh, from Tommy the Parkinson's and Tuppence. Crime collection. We didn't cover them on the regular podcast, so if you're craving some Tommy and Tuppence in your life, you might want to check that out. You can also email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Bobcat. Our Facebook page is allaboutagatha. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And please, please do take a moment to rate and review us, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.